While Jesus was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? When those who were around saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. When they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was also with him. But Peter denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. After an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, well, before we jump into that text, let us, let us pray. Uh, Father, we, we all have different things that are on our hearts, our minds, that we bring into this, this space. Things, questions we have, events that happened in the past week that are on our minds, things that are in the future that, we're, that are, are weighing us down. Uh, God, there's, there's just a lot. We bring a lot into this place. And so we, we open your word each week, trusting that your spirit knows what our hearts need, and that by opening your word, you will speak into where we are. Uh, so, Spirit, uh, there's no way to plan for that, and so I just pray you would, you would give the work that, that everyone in this room needs this evening. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my, one of my favorite people in the world right now is my soon-to-be two-year-old daughter, Eden. Uh, which should not come as a surprise, but uh, the reason she's one of my favorite people in the world right now is because every time she sees me, she is thrilled. So excited to see me. So I came home from work a couple of weeks ago, and uh, it was one of those warm days, and so our front door was open. There was just a glass door between me and the inside of our house, and as I'm coming up the sidewalk, my daughter sees me from inside the house, just lights up and bolts right for the door. I mean, just sprints right at the door. But as she gets closer to the door, she realizes there's a glass door between me and her, and as she's running to the door, she knows she can't get through, so she just punches the glass door. I don't know if it's out of anger, frustration, or if she's like, I'm going to break this glass door and get to my father. It's one of those two. It was just, it's just this moment of, and I, for the best definition of joy I've, I've ever heard is joy is when someone is glad to be with me. And that, I just felt that in that moment. I love my daughter and I love how much she loves to be with me, at least right now. Um, fast forward a couple days and I spent the morning with our, our four kids. Misty had things to do. So I was with our four kids, and Eden was just not, not having anything that day. 
she, she was doing one thing, then she started crying, and because she was angry, she couldn't do that thing. So then we went over and we did that thing, which made her angry that she was no longer doing this thing. So we went back to this thing, which made her angry that she was, and it's just, that's just what we did for a couple hours, was she just cried and yelled at me uh, the whole time. Uh, and so finally, Misty gets home, and I was just like, hey, she is your daughter. Enjoy her, and I, I'm, I'm done. I need a break from this. Um, right, so one day of joy, another day of, I just, I need a break uh, from this. And, and I think for many people, the assumption is, at some point, that is what God is like towards us. In our own neediness, our own, <laughs> uh, our own demands, at some point, God is just like, okay, I need a, I need a break from you, from this, from your, your emotional neediness, your be- whatever it is, I just need a break. And is that what God is like? That today we come to one of the, I mean, truly the most intense passages in all of Scripture, which is Peter, who was a, a very close companion of Jesus, a, a close friend of Jesus, a disciple of his, probably the most, uh, the most outwardly committed person to Jesus. He was the guy who's like, man, if, if I have to die, Jesus, if it's just me and you left in the world, it'll be me and you. That's who Peter was. Peter denies Jesus three times right when Jesus actually needs people around him to support him as he's being arrested and tried and and moving towards his death. At Jesus' lowest moment, Peter completely abandons him. And Luke gives us this detail, which isn't in other Gospels, which is that as as Peter denies Jesus for the third time, they actually meet eyes. Jesus turns to look at Peter right as Peter denies him for the third time. That's an intense moment that we're given here in the Gospel of Luke. And then Peter's response to Jesus looking at him is that he, f- he runs away weeping. And I think I've always read that, much like how I encountered my, my daughter in that moment, which is, is, like, surely Jesus looks at Peter and is like, wow, wow how pathetic. What a waste, right? Like, you couldn't do it, Peter. And that's, like, this look of disappointment on Peter, and that's why Peter runs away weeping. But is that what happens? And Jesus, or Peter is weeping in the presence of, of Jesus, and Jesus looks at him. What's happening in that moment? Probably more relevant for us, what, when we get to that moment of weeping in the presence of Jesus, what does he do with our tears? What is Jesus doing with Peter in this moment? So that, that's how I want to walk through this text, is, is really asking this question. Okay, so Jesus, Peter, meet eyes. Peter runs away weeping. So what does Jesus do with our tears. And to start asking that question, we actually need to go back because there's a few verses that set up this moment of Peter's denial, which is in uh, verse 31 of Luke 22. So before we get to the actual denial, uh, Jesus says this. Uh, Peter's all, Peter had another name, Simon, as well, and here Jesus calls him that. Verse 31 of Luke 22. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So Jesus says two things to Peter there. One is uh, Satan is trying to destroy you and wants to sift you like wheat. He's like, wow, that's intense. Uh, And then the other thing is Jesus says, but it's okay because I'm praying for you. So we have to unpack that a little bit. One, listen, even if if you're someone who believes that the Bible's true and is a Christian, we all struggle to, to actually believe there's a supernatural reality because we're in the West, 
In the West, is something that is, uh, the way we view the world is just, there's always a scientific explanation. We're basically materialists in that we don't, we don't view the world with a supernatural lens. We just don't, don't do it. Even if you believe in that, we don't do that. So I want to take a moment just to say, like, we need to have that lens when we come to the Bible. So whether you're someone who's not a Christian, doesn't believe this, and is like, demonic stuff's ridiculous, or you're a Christian who's like, yeah, it's probably true, but it, does, it doesn't mean anything to you. I, I want to point out a couple of things. And, and one is, we live in what is, is like verifiably the best time to ever live in history. Uh, Steven Pinker, a uh, professor, recently did a book on this. They basically said, like, any measurable quality of life statistic, like, we are crushing it. We're doing incredible. When it comes to, uh, listen, famine has basically been eradicated. We have incredible access to medical technology and, and treatments for all, all types of diseases that has drastically improved quality of life. Violence. Uh, in, in, in cities, uh, violent crime, all-time lows across the board. It's, um, it's incredible. In terms of, of the, the quality of life you and I have, it is astounding. And yet, all like social markers are like tanking. Anxiety is at an all-time high. Depression, suicide at an all-time. And this is before COVID even hit us. Uh, mistrust of neighbors at an all-time high. Despite the fact we've never had lower rates of violence, people have never been more afraid of what their neighbors are going to do to them or what, what's going to happen in their own communities. And, and the reason I bring that up is just to say, despite our material conditions being great, one, it's not deli- none of that's delivered better quality of life, like actual better quality of life to us. Um, and, and two, it, that just, to me, highlights the fact that that just what you see is not always what you get. There's, there's more to life than material things. And that's a lot of what's happening here in this passage is that Jesus is wrestling with realities that are not seen. Right? And that's highlighted when he's arrested and Jesus says to them, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Like it's very clear Jesus understands this moment as one in which supernatural realities are at play. And yet, it, that doesn't mean that like, oh, the, the devil's out to get you and he's going to get you. No, but what Jesus also says to Peter is, but I'm praying for you. I'm standing between you and Satan because he wants to destroy you, but I am standing in that gap for prayer. And so the first, the first reflection on what what does Jesus do with our own tears, our own weakness, our own vulnerabilities? The first thing he does is Jesus knows that we need prayer, and he prays for us. Jesus knows that we need prayer, and he is praying for us. Because ultimately, in this, in this arrest narrative of Jesus, Jesus is in control. It's pretty sad. Like he's getting arrested, and yet it's almost like he's narrating his own Arrest, And you see this in a few different ways. The first is that he names Judas as his own betrayer. Now, one of the interesting things about God, the Gospel of Luke is the, the word crowd is almost always positive towards Jesus. So when we hear a crowd is coming towards him, we, we know where the story is going, so we think negative. But that's not necessarily what everyone in this moment would have thought. There's a crowd coming to Jesus. There were lots of crowds coming to Jesus because they liked him. But Jesus knows this is not that type of crowd. And as they're coming, he calls out Judas before Judas has even betrayed him. Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? He names his betrayer, rather than letting his betrayer just betray him, 
First, that's one sense in which Jesus is in control. The other is, uh, as the, the people are coming to arrest Jesus, the disciples are like, all right, this is the time we throw down. Like, we got weapons. Let's go to war. Angels are going to come and surround us, and we're going to win this thing. And so uh, we're told in another gospel, this was Peter who pulled out a sword and tried to kill a guy. Um, but we don't, Luke doesn't tell us that. Uh, Peter, though, doesn't have good aim. He doesn't do the job. He just cuts off a guy's ear. And Jesus, first of all, says, stop. Like, I've not come for violence. And then secondly, he, actually, he heals one of the people who's arresting him. He heals that man's ear. And the third way you see Jesus in control of his own arrest is he gives, uh, he gives an, an arrest, I'm getting arrested speech. Now, if you've watched cops, uh, people often give speeches while they're being arrested. It's, that's not this type of speech. Uh, Jesus instead, he, he's, he's in very much control of what's happening here. And he says to those arresting him, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour in the power of darkness. And he's like, all right, I've gotten what I need to get off my chest. I've said what I need to say. Now you may arrest me. Right? He, he is in control of his own arrest. And that's important because while this is the power of darkness, this is a moment of incredible darkness, Jesus has already framed it to Peter as, don't, it's okay, I'm praying for you. And if you hear that, like Jesus knows you that you need prayer, he knows that we need prayer, and he's praying for us, you think, well, that's true of, of Peter, that's what Jesus said to Peter, that's not, he's not saying that to us, but actually that is said of us in the New Testament. In Hebrews 7.25, we're told, that Jesus is able to save those to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So the reason Jesus is able to save you, if you go to God through Jesus Christ, the reason he is able to save you is because he lives to make intercession for you. Literally, he lives to pray for you, right? So if you're a Christian, you believe Jesus is not dead, he's alive, which means he's somewhere doing something. And what Hebrews 7 says is that he is right now at the right hand of God. And the thing he is doing is interceding for us, praying for us, because we know he knows that we need it. So Dane Orland and Gentle and Lowly unpacks this idea by saying this. Uh, he says this a little, a little tongue in cheek. Our prayer life stinks most of the time. But what if Jesus, you heard Jesus praying aloud for you in the next room? Few things would calm us more deeply. I mean, that's something you need to do later tonight or tomorrow morning. Just what, how is Jesus praying for you right now? He's living to make intercession for you, to save you to the uttermost, which means he's praying for you right now. So what's he praying? So what does Jesus do with our, our tears? He knows we need prayer, and he's praying for us. Moving on, um, I want to I read all four verses of what happens, uh, or how G uh, Jesus sets up this denial narrative. So verses 31 through 34 in chapter 22. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So Jesus knows ahead of time that Peter is going to deny him. 
And this is, uh, Jesus knows Peter in ways that Peter doesn't even know of himself. Now, last week, uh, I told a story of, of our staff, and I was, I was very hard on Joseph because I said, you know, we talked about what's the best pizza in Kansas City. Joseph's answer was Domino's, which is, you know, was, we kind of humiliated him because it's a humiliating answer. So I feel, like, I, I feel like I need to undo that a little bit, be nice to the staff, uh, to, to my fellow coworkers uh, this evening. So I want to say something nice. I'm not about Joseph, about someone else. Uh, but... Andrew, Andrew Campbell is the best gift giver that I have ever encountered. The last two Christmases, uh, he's gotten me a, like a wooden Cubs W flag, which if, you're, you know, if you know anything about the Cubs, the Cubs fly a white flag with a blue W on it whenever they win above Wrigley Fields. It's like the, one of the symbols of the Cubs. So he, he made that for me. It's incredible. He even, even went to the detail of finding Cubs blue for the, for the W. It's incredibly impressive. And listen, I had no idea I wanted that until he gave it to me. And it's like, this is the thing I've wanted my entire life. I didn't know it. And then this year, he got, uh, he got something that, that was from, uh, from Bloomington, Indiana, which is where Indiana University is. Sort of a map of Bloomington, which is a place uh, I grew up with my grandparents. It's really, really meaningful to me. And when I saw it, it's like, this, I, I didn't know I wanted this my entire life. And so you put this in front of me, and I, I wanted this. Right? That's a good gift giver. Gives you something you wanted, and you didn't know it. Right? They anticipate what you want, and then they give it to you, right? Someone who gets you a drink and brings you your favorite drink or takes you to your favorite restaurant without even having to ask. They know, they anticipate. So that's a good example. People who know you so well, they can, they can bring you joy and bring you something that you love. Jesus, I think he has that gift, but Jesus also has the gift of knowing the worst things about us and anticipating those things about us as well, which is what he's doing here with Peter. Peter, I know you're going to deny me three times. And so what does Jesus do with our tears? Yes, he prays for us, but also Jesus knows me better than I know myself. Jesus knows me better than I know myself. And so as, as, Peter, as Peter runs away weeping, he has to grapple with the fact that the thing he was convinced he would never do, he's done. The kind of person that he thought he was, he is not. The kind of person he insisted to Jesus that he was, he is not. And any time we encounter one of those moments ourselves where what we hoped we would be, we, we don't, we're not. We didn't, we didn't live into that. It will lead to sorrow. It will lead to weeping. And that raises the question, is that why Peter's weeping? Is Peter weeping because he is found out to be not the person that he thought he was? Henry Drummond talks about uh, that type of sorrow like this. He says, in this kind of sorrow, however, there is no real repentance, no true sorrow for sin. It is merely wounded self-love. It is a sorrow over weakness, over the fact that when we were put to the test, we found to our chagrin that we had failed. But this chagrin is what we were apt to mistake for repentance. This is nothing but wounded pride, sorrow that we did not do better, that we were not so good as we and others had thought. So is that what Peter is experiencing in this moment of tears, is sorrow that he is not the person he thought he was? Well, here's the thing. When Jesus predicts Peter's denial, he doesn't just say, Peter, you're going to do this bad thing. He also tells Peter how he is to respond ahead of time. All right, so in, uh, in verse 32, Jesus says, I'm praying for you. And then he says to Peter, when you have turned again, 
strengthen your brothers. A clear indication of Peter's failure. And when Peter fails, Jesus says, then you need to turn. You need to turn once you fail. So then, and after you've turned, then strengthen your brothers. So Peter's response to his failure is to turn. So what is that? What does it mean to turn? And the tradition, traditional Christian word there is repentance. Repent means just to turn. So what is that? What is re- repentance? And repentance is, it's, it's a word that probably has a bit of a bad rap because of the way it, it I think, is often thought of. And, and sometimes I think we think of repentance as the sort of sorrow that I'm a really bad person that Henry Truman talked about. I think that's often how non-religious people think of repentance is I am a bad person and I need to go around thinking about how I am a bad person. I need to believe I am an awful person and that's what repentance is. I am bad. Which, like, that's, listen, if you just go around thinking you're a bad person your entire life, it's just, that doesn't feel like a recipe for a, a joy-filled, good life. So is that repentance? And the answer, I, it's no, that's not what repentance is. Religious people tend to think more repentance is saying, I did a bad thing and I'm sorry that I did a bad, that bad thing, which is true. That is what repentance is. Repentance is, to some extent, I, like, I failed, right, Peter? I denied Jesus. I'm sorry I denied Jesus. And now I want to turn and move in a new direction. And that is a part of repentance. But there's a couple of problems with that. One is I'm, I'm increasingly convinced that those of us who are religi- uh, religious believe we are sinners, but do not remember the last time we sinned. Even though a lot of people have tried to point out, hey, I think you sinned there. And it's like, what? Me? Me, a sinner? How dare you, right? That tends to be the response when someone tries to point out flaws in us. Even though, like, as Christians, like, our fundamental belief is, I'm so flawed as a sinner, I, like, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, had to die on a cross for my sin. Then when actually someone gives me evidence that that's a true reality, it's like, how dare you, right? That, that tends, at least in the last year of COVID, that tends to be the first response of any naming of sin with other people. So that, that's one problem of that being the vision of repentance. It's hard to get anybody to acknowledge that, you know, all of us, that we actually have um, sinned. Uh, the other reason why I think that definition of repentance also ultimately falls um, a, little bit, a little bit short is because of what's happening in this moment with Peter. It, it, turns, it turns repentance into almost an ex- exchange instead of what I think is happening in this moment with Jesus and Peter. So what's happening? What does it mean to turn? I think the best definition of what turning looks like is this little prayer by Augustine who who prayed this, Lord, let me know you, O you who know me, then I shall know even as I am known. What Augustine is praying there is, Lord, if I am to actually know myself, I have to know you because you are actually the only one who knows me for who I truly am. Right? Repentance isn't just, I have a few things I do wrong, a few flaws I need to, to be knock, that need to be knocked out of. No, repentance is recognizing the fullness of who I am created to be is only exists and abides in the presence of God who knows me better than myself. And repentance is actually fully opening myself up to let the Lord look on me and open his gaze into my life. Lord, let me know you. I want to know you because you know me. And when I know myself, because I know you, then I shall know. And this is the way Henry Drummond talks about what true repentance is. It's not feeling awful about something I've done or feeling awful about who I am. Henry Drummond writes this, True contrition occurs when God turns and looks upon us. 
Human sorrow is us turning and looking upon ourselves. True, there is nothing wrong in turning and looking at oneself, only there is a danger. We can miss the most authentic experience of life. For genuine repentance consists of feeling deeply our human helplessness, of knowing how God comes to us when we are completely broken. In the end, it is God looking into the sinner's face that matters. In other words, like turning is not me finding my own flaws and being convinced of my wrongness and where I need to repent. Turning is, is letting God look full into my face, fully in, being fully in the presence of God, knowing my own hum, human helplessness and knowing he is coming to help. He's not looking away. He's turning towards me. And one of the beautiful things about Luke 22 is the same phrase that Jesus says to Peter to turn, right? When you, after you've turned again, so you're going to have to turn after you fail. It's the, the same root word is used of Jesus when we read, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. How many of us actually believe in our, our moments of greatest failure and weakness and brokenness? The, Lord is, the Lord's posture towards us is not my posture towards my daughter, which is, I've had enough. But is actually turning towards us. Isn't looking, he's not looking away in disgust. He's turning towards us. This is Peter's moment of greatest failure in his life, the moment he finds out he's not who he thought he was, he couldn't do what he wanted to do, and yet Jesus is not turning away in disgust. He's turning towards Peter. So what does Jesus do with our tears? He, he, he's already praying for us because he knows we need it. He already knows all of our flaws, our brokenness, that he's not turning away, he's turning towards us. Uh, but finally is this question, okay, well, what happens when people weep in the presence of Jesus in the Gospel of, of Luke? Well, I just readily admit, like, that's an intense question. We're talking about weeping in the presence of Jesus. And I, as I was writing this sermon, I, just, I, I sort of thought about the last couple of weeks, what's ahead in the next uh, couple of weeks ahead. And I just want to name a reality, which is the most intense service of, of any Christian year is Good Friday. It's an hour of the, the room gets darker and we meditate on the crucifixion of Christ. It's an intense evening where we all acknowledge our deep brokenness and how it led to the crucifixion of Jesus. And so in many ways, this entire Lent season, we are taking week by week the crucifixion narrative of Jesus. We are stringing out one hour of Good Friday into like multiple Sundays of the darkness, right? It's going to just keep getting a little darker, a little darker each Sunday, which typically like in the American context, churches where we just go to feel like happy and we don't want to think about the dark things. Let's just make everyone happier at uh, church. I remember visiting a church with a couple of leaders uh, a year or so ago. We visited another church and like, you know, what we like about this church is that we always just leave happy. Everyone's just happy here. And I was like, is that not true at our church? Are we, just, are we not happy? Like, what? I'm not sure what we're doing here. But I, just, I want to name that reality, not to apologize for, like, the fact we're leaning into the darkness over Lent, uh, but to say, hey, well, next series is on joy in Philippians. That's, that's where we're headed. But the only way that type of series can actually make sense is if you look full into the power of darkness, what... Luke says here, any joy that doesn't deal with the realities and the conditions on the ground in this world is a fragile joy that eventually is going to get grabbed by what this world actually is. 
And so we're kind of in a season of just reflecting on the deep, broken reality of our world. And yet, that's where, in many places where, where joy can begin. So Hans Inward, he says this, Our faith begins at the point where atheists suppose it must be at an end. Our faith begins with the bleakness and power, which is the night of the cross, abandonment, temptation, and doubt about everything that exists. I mean, that's where we are in this moment. Like Luke, or, or Peter, has denied Jesus. He's ran off weeping. Surely this is, like, it's all falling apart. Jesus, the Son of God that Luke has named throughout the gospel, is arrested. He's going to, he's going to be killed. It looks, I mean, this is like, this is as dark as it can get. Jesus being arrested, Peter fleeing away in tears. And so we have to ask the question, what happens when people weep in the presence of Jesus? When we see Peter run away from Jesus weeping, we should be asking, what happens elsewhere in the Gospel of Luke when people are weeping in the presence of Jesus? And the answer is the same thing happens every time. In Luke chapter 7, verse 13, Jesus and his disciples were going into this town as people were coming out of the town. And they were coming out of the town because it was a funeral procession. A man had died and people were coming out to grieve his death. And it was a, it was a sad death because uh, the, the man who died uh, died to a, a widow. So the woman had already lost her husband. Now her only son had died. She's left alone. And so the town is going out weeping. And in Luke 7, 13, Jesus this happens. Uh, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Which is a brutal thing to say to a woman who is grieving the loss of her only son who's already lost her husband unless Jesus plans to raise that man to life, which is what he does. He raises the man back to life. The widow has her son again. And later in Luke chapter 7, Jesus is having dinner at a man named Simon's house. It's a bunch of religious people who've gathered together to talk about religious things. And as they are talking about religious things, a woman bursts into the house uninvited. And we're told she's notorious. She's a sinner. She's not the sort of person that religious people would hang around. And we read this about her. Standing beside Jesus at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wipe them with the hair of her head. So she barges into the room. She's weeping, hoping Jesus will embrace her. And, and as this happens, the religious people immediately get angry because, and, and begin to think to themselves, if Jesus were a prophet, he would know not to embrace this woman. He would know her reputation, that she was notorious, and he would cast her out. Jesus, because he was a prophet and knew what they were thinking, responded to them by saying, uh, listen, I came in here, you didn't show me any hospitality. You didn't wash my feet. You didn't show the basic kindness that people are owed guests when they showed in. And yet this woman, this woman who you think is notorious and worth nothing, she has showed me an act of hospitality through her kindness to me that you didn't show. And then Jesus looks at this woman who has showed incredible bravery to come into a, a room full of religious men who all looked at her in condescending ways I mean, imagine the courage that would take for her just to enter into the room, let alone just weep openly in front of them, cleaning Jesus' feet off with her tears. The courage that would take, Jesus looks at her and says, your sins are forgiven. And then last example, Luke chapter 8, 
Jesus is visited by a man named Jairus who, whose daughter is sick back at his home and he pleads with Jesus to go and heal her. But as they're talking, messengers from the house come and tell Jairus, your daughter has already died. But Jesus insists to go to the house anyway. They get to the house. Everyone is mourning at the death of this little girl. And we read this. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But Jesus said, do not weep. Again, a brutal thing to say to a grieving family over the loss of this little girl, unless Jesus planned to go into her room and to raise her to life, which is what we're told happens. He goes, he takes the girl by the hand, he says, little girl, get up. She gets up and is raised into new life. So every time Jesus encounters someone weeping, one of two things happen. Either he forgives them, or, and he doesn't say this because he's some macho guy from, you know, the United States, like, don't cry. Like, he says, do not weep because I'm going to take away the cause of your tears. And all of this points back to a promise Jesus makes in Luke chapter 6, his little sermon on the plain. And one of his statements there is he says in his teaching, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. A teaching that does not make sense in the moment. That sounds a little, maybe a little cruel in the moment. Until you see Jesus' ministry and he goes to to funerals and raises people to life. He goes to broken people who think no one cares for them and he forgives their sins. When we get to this moment with Peter and Peter runs away weeping, we know this moment is not lost. Because we know in the Gospel of Luke, blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh. So our... Our reality tonight is, one, if if you are not a Christian, the offer to you is that if you come to Jesus in faith, the things that, that are causing you tears in this moment, Jesus will one day turn into laughter. Right? The promise of Jesus is that he will take my tears and create a universe of laughter. Blessed are those who weep now, for they shall laugh. That is a promise he's offering to you, to come to him In faith, have you done that? Have you received him? Have you prayed to him in faith? He is waiting. But for those of us who are Christians, who are in the way of Jesus already, what that means is that the very very moments you and I are weeping in his presence, right? Whether out of our own brokenness, because we find that we were not the people that we thought we were. He's not looking away from us. He's turning towards us. He's embracing us in forgiveness in those moments of tears. Or when this world has just finally got you through the suffering, the brokenness, the pain of death itself. We know, like, those are moments to tap into that promise that those who weep shall one day laugh. And as we read this crucifixion narrative over the next couple of weeks and we move towards resurrection, what we know ultimately is true as Christians is that Jesus did not get arrested and killed because he got, things got out of control. You know, he was in control. He arrested himself to some extent. And he was arrested. He was crucified. He was put on a cross, put in a grave, raised to new life three days later to be ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is praying for us now. All of that happened because Jesus intends to keep the promise he made to us, which is blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Let's pray. Father, that, that is a promise of Jesus that we, we speak and we claim now. That for those of us are who, this is, a, this is a season of tears and weeping. 
I pray you'd give us the strength to give those to, to your son, knowing that he's made us a promise that those who weep shall laugh. For those of us not in that place, maybe life is, is, is okay right now. Um, Father, we no less need to be in a posture of humility and need before the Lord. And so I, I pray, God, that we would, come, we, would just, we would experience this word from Jesus. Blessed are those who weep now, for they shall laugh. Not as, as an interesting teaching from the ancient world, but as a promise from a living Savior who intends to make that true for us, even tonight, even if it's not time for the tears to be washed away, to taste the joy of Christ, the laughter of Christ. Spirit, would you do that for us this evening, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.